1: Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try.
2: Hello, humane listeners. Artificial intelligence isn't the future, it's the here and now. And Manning Publications wants to help you get up to speed with some of the most coveted skills in the industry. From machine learning to computer vision, Manning is working with the most talented experts to help you get an edge in the world of AI. Whether you're a beginner or a seasoned programmer, Manning has content for everyone. And now, if you go to deals.manning.com slash humane and use the code podhumane19, you can get 40% off of any of our hand-picked books and video courses for Humane listeners. There's no better time than now to get started. So again, that's deals.manning.com slash H-U-M-A-I-N.
3: Today's guest speaker shares her wealth of knowledge and expertise in the talent race for enterprise AI and strategy. Listen in as Beth Partridge from Milk and Honey, and I explore topics including what cultural barriers must be overcome to build a data-driven culture, what are the three competency centers that link teams together, and how enterprises can build effective data science and AI research teams. This is Humane. Welcome to Humane. My name is David Jakobovich, and I will be your host throughout this series. Together, we will explore AI through fireside conversations with industry experts. From business executives and AI researchers to leaders who advance AI for all, Humane is the channel to release new AI products, to learn about industry trends, and to bridge the gap between humans and machines in the fourth industrial revolution. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Welcome back, everyone, to the Humane Podcast, Bridging the Gap of Humans and Machines in the Fourth Industrial Revolution. This week, I have a special guest with us. This is Beth Partridge. She is the CEO, Chief Data Scientist of Milk and Honey, She's coming to us all the way from Silicon Valley and is working in an industry very special, near and dear to my heart, which is not only about employing data scientists, but discovering what are the best skills and the best way to hire data scientists as well. Beth, thanks for joining us.
4: Thank you for having me.
3: This is so fun. And, you know, I every day teach and every day build curriculum and, and every day interview candidates myself. And the industry is changing so fast. There's so much misinformation and, and so much going on. What have you been seeing going on at Milk and Honey? And tell us a little bit about what you guys do.
4: Yeah. So our charter is similar to yours actually, that we're trying to help bridge the gap between business and data science for sort of the rest of the world, right? The non, non-data native companies, everybody else. And we're seeing exactly that. There's confusion starting with job titles, to, you know, how to organize teams, to, you know, really what Data science means in terms of organizational structural requirements and cultural change requirements, and it's still we've been at this for a couple of years now, and it's still just a giant mess. I mean, really, every day there's innocent but misinformation, you know, in the press constantly, and it's especially hit hard for um, recruiters because a it's technical, but it's not technical in the same way that other technical jobs are, where they could you know pick up names of some you know tools or you know, and categorize them because there's just no definition for data scientist yet. And back from the HBR article, when was it five years ago that declared data scientists the sexiest new job of the century? A lot of people that aren't really data scientists call themselves data scientists, and it's just adding to the confusion.
3: It's so amazing. You know, I I got my start working in Fortran and C Sharp and (laughs) COBOL and all these, you know, more classic languages that are what Excel analysts and actuary analysts and, and all them we work in. And it's like the whole industry is merged, right? If you're business intelligence, if you're data, if you're visualization, whatever, it's just all jumbled into data science.
4: It is. In fact, we had to actually create our own internal, very detailed profiling tool in order for me to personally not have to, you know, interview every single candidate. So I created a tool where, you know, we ask a bunch of questions and ask them to put in some details about their projects. And we actually kind of have to cross reference between their tool set that they're familiar with and the roles that they say they do on their projects and, you know, the whole package in order to really figure out who's who. And then even once you figure out who's who, the other side of the equation is that our clients aren't familiar with how to form teams with all of the right skills. So you'll get um, teams that hire a PhD data scientist thinking that that's all they need. And and then the, the PhD data scientist ends up without the right support, no data engineering support or, you know, no data analyst support. And it's just this complete, you know, lack of understanding about who's going to do what. I mean, you can have the best data scientists in the whole planet and then the most committed C-suite, right, putting willing to put whatever resources they have into making this transition to adopting enterprise AI. And if you don't have somebody in the middle, then it's still not going to work. And that's what's happening over and over again. You know, there's, it's just, there's a. I I think what that, what's starting to happen now is that there's like a catalyst sort of person missing in the middle that can connect the dots and make it happen, you know?
3: You know, what, Galvanize, we uh, call this catalyst person, and this may or may not be the right name, but we call it the data translator. Someone who, you know, yeah, like they work with the business, they work with the data, they piece it together. And, you know, I don't know if that is the right title, but I think it's in the right direction. Because when you think of the PhD data scientist, this person is someone who's really smart, right? They've been spending years of research, they've been studying, they've published, but that doesn't mean they're a pro at R Python, right? Maybe they only did a couple things. And I think, as you just mentioned, that sometimes sets them up to fail because they do need someone who's been a hardcore Oracle DBA or data engineer for many years off the cloud or on the cloud or someone who's been doing reports and analytics for quite a while. And so what you're mentioning is all about community of practice and building up these best protocols for data science organizations I think most companies don't even have data science teams still. I mean, is is that right? So
4: many have tried. I think most are trying like at a project level, which is, you know, a whole nother topic about that you really can't approach data science by, you know, starting it in a corner and then having it grow. You know, it takes cross-functional teams and commitment from the top and all that, the cultural stuff. But I think that the piece that's even more critically missing is um, even classes in expertise in application of data science is the big missing gap, I think. Yeah. It's the people that can take, like, my favorite example is, like, a machine learning model to minimize downtime, like, for factory equipment, right? One of these preventative maintenance models. It's like you have a factory manager who would do anything to, and this comes from my background, I didn't tell you know where you know Fab goes down and it's, I don't know, millions of dollars a minute or whatever, right? Every every minute, every hour counts. So the factory managers are willing to do whatever they have to do to minimize how often their machines go down for preventative maintenance. So there's a lot of ways to solve that, right? Right now they do a really conservative estimate, whatever the manufacturer of the equipment recommends to make sure that it doesn't go down because, you know, downtime is the worst. But there's many different ways you can solve that problem, right? You could do a a recommender that says, what's the percentage that the next machine's going to fail? Or you could do a classifier that says it's good or bad, or, you know, there's a bunch of different ways you can approach it. And probably in the beginning that you only have so many options, but depending on how much data you have, but you don't have to wait until you have this perfect model that can predict how many hours till the machines, till each machine fails to use it because you're starting from this really conservative worst case. So if there's somebody that has enough confidence and understanding of the business and confidence in the models themselves, then you can do a plan where, you know, as the, as the model's maturing and developing, you can start allowing it to, say, you know, tweak the preventative maintenance plus or minus so you can wait a little longer. And, you know, and then over time, you can, you know, as you get more data, the right data, you can move to a different kind of model and, you know, the, and the confidence is constantly growing. But what's happening is that, you know, there's just not that bridge in between. So somebody says, oh, you know, they've heard of GE or, you know, one of the well-known preventative maintenance model examples. And which is this you know beautiful model that says exactly how many hours until the engine fails or whatever, and so they want that, and they wait for that where and it just doesn't happen, you know they get frustrated, they don't understand that machine learning projects are more like r and d projects you can't really plan on um you know a development time, and so things are just dying on the the lab floor and it's really that i mean it takes somebody there's so much mistrust, I think also kind of from the press and just because there's so much mis even the basics of the terminology AI versus machine learning versus big data is confusing. And there's just so much lack of understanding that it's almost causing the stalemate, you know? And the what did you call it? What was the, um, the name for that job? You the called data
3: it? translator.
4: Right. So we, we have been calling it internally, and we, we try to be really careful not to invent even more confusing job titles so we don't <laughs> use them outside. But we call it a data strategist. And so it's somebody that understands the business, but then understands machine learning enough to understand the different types of approaches and what it means in terms of risk and accuracy. And, you know, you have to really have somebody that has that, that crossover point. But we've uh, encountered people that were looking to fill this role. And the job titles that they posted were anything from technical product manager to um Oh, I can't remember the others, but they don't know how to describe the role that they're looking for. So they weren't getting like any response at all. That's how big the disconnect is right now.
3: And we've been seeing some other titles coming on for data scientists, like in the past couple of years, customer data scientists and market data scientists and even solution engineers. So I think some of them are trying to get there, right? And they're like this hybrid of technical and business. And I think you're exactly right in what you mentioned, Beth, that R&D projects are getting stuck in the lab and dying on the floor. Whether it's consumer facing with students who I've worked with or enterprises, I've seen dozens and dozens of projects like yourself. And so many of them are just technical, but there's no business case. And I, I always tell our clients, like you have to operationalize your results and be able to translate or speak to what does this percent of accuracy mean? What does this false positive for the manufacturing defects or predictive maintenance, like you mentioned, yeah. uh, result in? And perhaps people not being able to strategize that has been causing a mistrust in the process. It
4: is. It is. There's just so much. And it's mistrust going both directions. I mean, we did a a panel with, well, both old and new, we did a couple different panels of data scientists to find out what they're experiencing in the job market. And a lot of the younger ones said that, you know, they go into some of the big, Fang, you know, companies and they interview for a supposedly data scientist role, and then they get hired and they're not doing data science. They're going, they're doing reporting or whatever. And then on the other side, you start to see articles from disgruntled or frustrated and frustrated and appropriately so, right? Um, companies that say, Well, you know, we hired the best data scientist and we put a bunch of money into it and got nothing. And it's really they were understandable the Kaggle Grandmaster,
3: they were number one at lead code, but they can't do data science.
4: Yeah. It's so frustrating. and then, But I actually think that there's an opportunity here that, you know, when I get some spare time, uh, I still spend some time with uh, Berkeley. That's where I got my master's. And um, I was speaking with the career center, the person that, that runs the career center for the mid students there. And she came to me actually saying that the data science programs now, they try to solicit not just CS or computer science You know, undergrads, they're trying to get a good cross-section since data science is so, you know, requires domain experience. But the ones that come into the program without having a CS uh, or computer science background, they get through the program and they understand machine learning, but then they don't feel confident enough to come out and get to try to look for machine learning jobs or even data engineering jobs because that's not their background. So they're going to the career center saying, "What should I do?" And here we are out here saying, "You know what? That's what we really need is these people that understand the business and understand machine learning enough to draw those to make the connections and to really be that catalyst." So I really do think that there's an opportunity to to bridge this gap. We just have to let it evolve and and just kind of name it actually it would be great and then we need to create coursework in serious applications of machine learning in business i mean there really aren't any and lately there's all kinds of how to get started in ai classes popping up everywhere right all the continuing education and stuff and very often they go through like one example of each type or you know they go through some of the more common applications which is great i mean it's a great place to start but You know, there's really that there's no class where anybody can sit down and say, okay, here's a business problem. What are the different kinds of ways that you could approach it? You know, what kinds of models could you do? And, you know, how could you evolve it and how can you do a deployment plan and get it integrated into the business processes in a way that you don't have to wait, you know?
3: I think that's so key, what you mentioned. It's like, how do you get to model production? How do you get to model persistence? How do you get to these deployment plans? But to get there, there's so much required before that. And funny enough, I've actually recently featured on the Humane podcast, one of the professors from the MIDS program, um, Alberto Mm Todeschini. So uh, he's been on a previous episode and we've talked about Similar points to what you just mentioned, Beth, about the business case and you know, how often get a lot of these executive students, right, who are mid-level managers at companies who may not have that full technical background and they, they want to have more of it so that they can hire data scientists and scale out an organization. But it's like how much of that do you get not only in the program, but then to be able to implement it? And I yeah. think that is a missing piece and i've noticed that the industry is continuing to fragment in a certain regards we now have this this new term in the past few years called ml ops there's a lot of ml ops conferences coming out about kubernetes and docker and replicated and deployments like terraform and ansible and a lot of that so i think there's there's so many new segments of the data science and machine learning, which is so fascinating.
4: I actually think that the the emergence of that segment that you're talking about now, and it's starting to, the term data engineering is starting to stick for that, which is great, because I think that's now starting to happen. And, you know, there's been a lot of press about four to one data engineers to machine learning engineers. So I think that one's on its way. But this one that we're talking about, the more the catalyst role of applied data science is still missing, right? I think it hasn't really been broadly recognized and we need to find a way to describe what it is and label it and start getting some some coursework along those lines, you know? It really is at, at its heart, it's applications of machine learning in business, period. There's not even really a framework for it. Isn't that
3: what students do in undergrad and MBA programs? They go through rotations when they get hired by companies, and they do these case studies where you might work in four divisions of the company for a year on these rotations in business, and that's the traditional Excel person. But how about for new companies when you get hired, do rotations as this applied data scientist to uncover the insights and, and what's going on in the organization? Maybe that's it. I mean, you mentioned earlier about, you know, the PhDs being set up to fail and, you know, everyone's rushing in, right, because of the hype. We got to be part of data science or we got to be part of AI, right? But is rushing worth or will that cause maybe the fourth AI winter?
4: Yeah. Well, I, I actually don't think there's too much momentum now for that to happen. And there are resources now. I mean, it's so ironic that like one of my um, one of the guys that I graduated with from the MIDS program, which was I think at the time one of the top three or four or five or whatever, and he had 10 years of experience as a data engineer at a major company, he could not get a job coming out. He just could not get a job, and we're seeing that now where many, many people that are hiring specifically say, "I'm sorry, we're not taking entry level." And that's not just, I mean, there's, you know, some debate about the certification programs and the bootcamp programs and how effective those are. But um, this is even coming out of the, you know, the accredited university programs that they're just because they're burned, they're feeling burned. And in a way, it's appropriate because you really do need to have some understanding of business in order to effectively do it. And so that, you know, again, it comes down to that gap, I think.
3: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I sit down on a lot of RFPs and proposals for cities and governments and, training and reskilling workforces. And one of them was with the heads of engineering of Instagram, Etsy, and Chartable just a few months back. And we were in that same exact conversation. They were saying, if we're going to hire anyone for data, we ideally are going to look at maybe PhDs or computer science grads. But, you know, they're going to get that preference over the boot camps. You know, sure, you got great programs. I can talk about Galvanize, Flatiron, Metis, you know, all day, every day. But if you're coming from a completely non-technical background and then doing the three-month boot camp to be a lead data scientist, I don't know. I mean, I remember when I was graduating business, my degree in undergrad and doing Excel, and I joined an actuarial department making $11 an hour. I mean, as an analyst doing very advanced code. So it's... um,
4: But I think what confuses it even more is that there's actually, we've built out a framework to describe the applications of AI for business. And there's really two major buckets. One is truly automation applications that are more related to NLP and computer vision and those kinds of true automation, you know, for, for minimizing headcount or whatever. And then there's analytics. The automation models, you really don't need to be, you don't need to be have as much data science experience because for, for the most part, you're just adapting the models that the cloud vendors offer. You're, you know, adding some transfer learning layers, you know, to a model. And a lot of them are accessible just by API calls. And then there's the traditional question of make versus buy. There's a lot of software as a service companies out there, especially like marketing, especially I think we're seeing a lot of them because it tends to be, you know, um, compatible from one company to another. But there is room for people that have that data science experience. But unless you have somebody that's doing the strategic plan that understands that there's those different levels of expertise required and doing like a strategic plan that takes into account those make versus buy decisions then you know you can't take advantage of it another way i think is thing that is underutilized is that you know 80% of building a machine learning model is data wrangling right it's just getting it healthy and figuring it out and moving it around and there's such an opportunity to bring in young data scientists to assist with you know doing that data wrangling so we could be stretching our machine learning resources further while simultaneously training these younger data scientists with the kinds of practical experience that they need I think it just comes down to just a basic, just a lack of understanding still, just kind of industry wide about how it works and, and how that can happen, you know? But I really have hope that, like you said, the data scientists or the data engineer people, the Ansible and the, and that, the, just the recognition that there's that role, that's happening now pretty quickly. And I'm hoping that this data strategist or, you know, data, Data, whatever we end up calling them, that that application, data application of data science, I'm hoping that that will be next.
3: Yeah, I think so. I mean, of course, ML ops is happening so fast just because the cloud is getting more mature. But on the Applied Data Scientist, I think we're moving in that direction. I've coined previously on the Humane Podcast a few terms, the word data science is a service, uh-huh. which I think we're seeing, you know, platforms now like uh, Weights and Biases and Neptune and H2O and Spell and the lot, and Data Robot and a lot of these companies, right, where you're, as you mentioned, it's make versus buy. So maybe mm-hmm. you buy the solution or you, you integrate there. I think that might be something that's going to be an emerging trend in the remainder of 2019 and 2020.
4: Yeah, I hope so. I think that a lot of the auto ML tools that the cloud vendors are bringing out, I think that they're ending up getting a bad name because you don't you don't really end up getting fully completed models from them. But boy, they're um, awesome tools for doing. Like as we go out, set out to build a strategic plan with a client, you know, we first look at all the opportunities first from a business perspective where the biggest ROI is, and then we go through and look at what data is available and, you know, talk about what what kinds of models would be best. But with these ML productivity tools like the data robot, you can do a really easy, quick and dirty feasibility analysis. Just, you know, throw your data in and it runs it against or like every single Kaggle model or whatever, and you don't get anything close to a finished model, but you get, A, a head start at figuring out how to approach it algorithmically, and you get a good idea of what the baseline is, right? I mean, which ones that you're already reasonably close to that you could focus on first. So there's definitely a place for them, and I think it would be, again, a tool for this role, a really good tool for this role that we're talking about of the person who's doing the strategic planning and identifying the solutions and building out the plan and making them make buy decisions and all that kind of stuff. It's a, they're really, really valuable for that.
3: Yeah. And, you know, with the industry keep evolving, we've seen the 2012 to 2015 rise of big data, the 2015 to 2018 rise of data science, now the rise of AI and, you know, as you keep mentioning, Beth, uh, the skills of people are not necessarily matching the roles and you've built out this, you know, profile to better understand people. If you're a company today and you want to do hiring, I mean, what are some tips and tricks of the trade that you can recommend to companies looking to build out AI for enterprise?
4: Well, the first thing to look at is, and the first, the first thing to address is the cultural barriers, the corporate wide things that have to happen. Like there's, you really have to have a data-driven culture that, you know, is really absorbed in their bones. And you have to have a C-suite that's fully committed to riding out the wave and the problems and, you know, all of the retraining and all the stuff that it takes to actually, you know, make the adoption, get fully adopt enterprise AI. And then the next step after that, and frankly, I don't think anybody's figured out the, or there is no one answer probably to this is how do you organizationally bring in AI? Do you put it in your IT department, that generally doesn't work great. Or do you bring it into marketing if that's the first model you're going to do and that doesn't work so well either. So, um, you know, we're finding that the most successful models are to create some sort of a almost a competency center that links everybody together, so that's the second thing. So first, check the, for cultural holders. Second, figure out organizationally how you're going to implement it. And then the probably the most important piece is really sit down and understand what resources are necessary for a data science team to be successful. Because there's really three elements. There has to be the business domain expertise, the machine learning expertise, and the data engineering expertise. And those are generally, you know, three different specialties. I mean, you can find... Some data scientists, that can do all three, but in general, you know, there are three really different focus areas. And then even within those three focus areas, the folks that do the strategic planning stuff tend to be more business-focused and more strategic. And then the folks that are doing more of the implementation stuff could be the younger ones that are actually building it out. So there's actually kind of six roles, and it's really important to understand You don't even have to look at it from a role perspective, but it's important to understand what elements are required on a data science team to be successful and making sure you can put a name in each of those boxes, you know, do a little bit of homework up front and really make sure that you understand what the new data science team looks like.
3: And the recurring theme I'm hearing as you're sharing about these competency centers is that Data engineer, check, it's the new ML ops, you know, machine learning, it's the the dev, it's the data scientist, it's the new AI researcher, and so forth. Check. But the business domain, you know, who's doing that? Is it the business analyst, the data strategist, the data translator? And that seems to be this consistent missing piece, which might be why a lot of AI is getting left in the lab.
4: Yeah. We try to stay away from the trying to label them for exactly the reason that we're talking about. And from, you know, company to company, there's such vastly different definitions that we have a, we use a matrix where it says that actually we've broken it out into six phases of of development and then those three separate work phases. And it actually just says what they need to do. Like this person needs to identify business opportunities with high ROI. And then, you know, this person needs to scope and, you know, consider what are the different possible solutions, you know, instead of like saying who they are, we literally say, this is the activity that has to happen and the the expertise that they have to have. And it doesn't matter what they're called. And sometimes you can find, in fact, when we profile data scientists, it comes out in this like grid and some of them kind of straddle machine learning and data engineering. Some of them straddle machine learning, engine and business. And then some are more strategic than others. And we actually get you know, kind of a profile of where, of where the data scientists fit. So it's not always, it's not always a one-to-one, you know, different people have different backgrounds and different crossovers. It's the most important thing is that somebody on the team is able to actually do that function. You know, that's really the only way to, to evaluate it without running into all these problems with the job titles.
3: That's right. And if you can do all six of those or all three titles, you're pretty much found founder material. <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, that would be the unicorn, right? The f- the famous data science unicorn, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: Oh, so good. Yeah, it's it's incredible and you know, I think it's um a- as you mentioned, you know, we're, we're looking uh one of my mentors, you know, Amy Webb, I love all the work with her new book The Big 9 and then we we talk about the AI industry and there's over like 40 major trends this year and it, it continues to evolve and and i think one of the challenges is it's moving so fast in fact one of the most significant conferences in the ai space is, is neurips which is you know for doing a lot of computer vision and NLP and all these papers and research. And they said for this past conference, it sold out in 12 minutes. Everyone wanted to go to the conference. So for the first time in the December 2019 conference, they're doing a lottery system. You can't even pay to go to the conference. It's a lottery because so everyone's in on the MLAI Crates, if you will.
4: And there's there's other there's other ways that we're out of sync, too. I think I love to keep, keep up with all of the neural, you know, the brain kind of research because that's, I mean, deep learning is still just total brute force, right? I mean, we're going to have to find that mechanism that are, that enables our brains to, you know, repurpose. But anyways, besides that, there's um, different industries that are coming up with amazing approaches that aren't even getting shared industry to industry, like legals doing some amazing stuff with NLP and NLG, you know, doing you know, automatic drafting of briefs and, you know, doing some really innovative stuff with, you know, projecting which arguments are going to be the best and everything. And, and then there's, you know, other industries that are getting really good at like the marketing stuff. And it's just, even at that level, it's not getting shared. There's so much happening at once, you know, I mean, I try to keep up and I just, I still feel like I can't read half of the things that I want to, you know, it's, it's really crazy.
3: And there's so many papers coming out. I mean, I read that I think between last year and this year, more than eighty percent of all the data science ML AI papers all came out in the past two years. So it's such a scale. But you know, that does beg a question whether you're a professional who's retraining, you know, maybe going to mids or a program to pick up data science, or you're a fresh college grad or computer scientist going to a boot camp, and you're trying to get into data science. There's so much going on right now. I mean, what what should you do? You know, how should you make sure you could be employable? Because there is that risk of the skill trap. If you keep studying, you keep learning, yeah. you keep picking up things. So yeah, especially any with the, the
4: fear on, of yeah. hiring the newbies. Yeah. So what I tell people that are trying to get into it right now is. Get the education, you know, get the training, get solid on at least your machine learning basics, and then find a job at a company that's next to data science where maybe they do the data engineering or maybe they do the MLOps part if they come from a, um, a DevOps background or whatever. But I, I recommend that they get in someplace next to it and then so that they can then move into it once they're in because it's just nearly impossible they get straight in. You know, they have to find an opportunity where, or maybe it's somebody that has particularly strong specific domain expertise or domain background that you know they they could find a special niche. But in general, you have to kind of find a side way in right now. And I I honestly believe that once we find, once we get this resource of this strategy resource that can kind of make a plan, that all these people fit in somewhere. There is a need for all these people right now. I mean, the 80% or whatever it is of companies that haven't successfully adopted yet, they need these folks. It's just that we're stalled because we can't find a, we, we just don't have a framework for plugging the people in where they need to be. You know, and it's going to happen. I, I think it's going to tip at some point. This you know we're going to get 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 past this um, business understanding, and you know, then people are going to start to go, okay, I get it, and start to ramp up, and then there's not going to be nearly enough, I suspect.
3: Yeah, it's it, there's going to be a gap and maybe then, you know, the report about data science being the sexiest job of the century <laughs> will come true in, in, in that sense. But, you know, several things I think resonate with me that you just shared. So the data science next to I think of them as data science adjacent roles. So you're absolutely right. You know, Come in as a data analyst, but you're working with the ML or data science teams. So then you're seeing how they do code review, how they productionize their models. And over your one to two years in that role, you gain some mentors and experience, and then you can laterally make that move. which sounds really effective.
4: Yeah. Yeah. In fact, a lot of companies aren't even calling machine learning engineers, engineers. A lot of them, like Microsoft, tends to call them software engineers. And then they maybe, you know, add on machine learning. But there's a lot of crossover, especially at that machine learning space. And in DevOps, actually, I think DevOps to AI Ops is, I mean, you have to learn all the distributed. But so many companies are moving to cloud anyways, for just their normal operations, not even the AI distributed stuff. So I think that's starting to happen more quickly too.
3: Yeah, it's incredible. And the industry continues to evolve. You know, one thing I've worked with a lot of enterprises is I've also been working to coin the term the data science workflow. So I think it's important that you have that structure. But exactly like you just mentioned, Beth, it's constantly evolving. Like there's no perfect workflow. I think at one point I had 13 steps, then five steps, now seven steps. It's always, always changing, always iterating. And, You know, I I think we all want to make something that's agnostic to any industry or to any title, but, you know, it's a process. And I think like you mentioned, it's that strategy, like how can we do talent as a service so that we can effectively ramp up teams and ramp up divisions to succeed as enterprise AI companies?
4: Yeah. I mean, it's getting there, right? I mean, it's evolving so quickly. I think all the pieces are there and we're just kind of just it almost sometimes feels like we're just trying to catch up, you know, and put everything together that's already there because it's going so fast, you know.
3: You know, and even though it's moving so fast, I I love that we're always seeing lots of new trends and and new reports out there on the skills to be, you know, most relevant for the job of tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And so if we were to look out at data science and data engineer, or that's probably enough to look at, right? But if we look at that over the next, you know, two, three years, are there any signals that you see that those who are studying should be like, yeah, let's pick up this language or this toolkit, or this is what we should focus on if it's just one or two things to hyper-focus?
4: Yeah. Um, well, definitely Python is the, the machine learning language of choice for sure. And if somebody just wants to get a baseline that isn't quite sure where they want to end up, then absolutely take machine learning courses. There's They offer them through you know anything from the free online Khan Academy has some really good foundation classes to, you know, Coursera. And there's a, there's a ton of different ways to do that. But getting a baseline and, well, there's some baseline math first, if the baseline education didn't include especially linear algebra. I think you you need to have in order to really get into some of the machine learning. But any baseline that they, that you, they can get in understanding models and modeling and, you know, all of the Python library set and all that and would be, you know, give them the best foundation in order to go into whatever they whatever they decide to do with it. And I think you really have to have even the data engineers who are doing the dev the AI ops as we're calling it, they need to understand the models too because productionizing a, a recommender is completely different from productionizing, you know, some forecasting model. So everybody's got to have a baseline foundation of how machine learning models work and what the options are. And like the business folks at least need to understand enough to understand, okay, what is the risk really? And what is the bias really? So that they can translate that into business risk. So nobody can go wrong with taking basic machine learning courses, in my opinion. I think it's not just, you know, a next technology. It's like a whole new generation of analytics, really. I mean, I like to compare it to, I think machine learning is to business what the microscope was to medicine. We went from they went from like you know looking at symptoms or you know kind of guessing at generalizations from looking at a body to actually being able to see individual things that are happening. Well, that's really what machine learning means for business. It's no more surveys. It's no more aggregate statistics and you know guesses and segments. Now we look at each individual. We make predictions at that. that at the individual level, it's a fundamental shift in the way that we use and look at data, and the results are, you know, amazing. At least that's pretty consistent in the press that that everybody gets that they have to do it. They have to make the transition. It's just we're just stalled at, at actually implementing it.
3: Yeah, and whether you are just getting started or your enterprise company wanting to be AI enabled, it sounds like. All use cases are accelerating. We mentioned earlier in the episode about transfer learning and how NLP is you know, coming of age. A lot of great papers, a lot of great code bases have been coming out this year. We're even seeing the works from 2017, 2018 with computer vision now coming to age as well. So I think those are two of the big use cases that a lot of companies lean into when they want to be AI first. But it's more than just the use cases. It's being able to build an organization that's ready. I think you've said it best earlier several times, Beth, that it's about the culture. And it's all about, you know, being data first and and thinking about how do we constantly innovate. And it's not a one-year investment, but it's a consistent process that you got to be in for the long haul.
4: It is. And ironically, in the same issue of HBR that the you know the sexiest job article was in, there was another article that proclaimed, we were calling it big data at the time, I think, but it proclaimed big data a management revolution. So we've known from way back then, I think they called it exactly right. We just haven't quite found a way to translate it into action yet.
3: But even though we haven't yet, I think that's the key word that we will. We're in that right direction. And we um, perhaps we'll continue to be human in the loop enabled perhaps we'll be able to repurpose ourselves whether it's a future of elon musk style of having chips in our brain or running new cognitive tasks i think that's still early to tell but i think that's something that i'd love to continue to explore with you and you know really appreciate you for taking the time to appear today on the humane podcast
4: thank you thanks for having me
3: thanks so much it's been my pleasure Hey humans thanks for listening to this episode of humane my name is david Jakobovich and if you like humane remember to click subscribe on apple podcast spotify or luminary thanks for tuning in and join us for our next episode new releases are every tuesday